Hello, welcome to Enlightened Empaths with Samantha and Denise. We are so happy to have you join us this week. We are going to be talking about a topic that we feel is really important for empaths to consider as you navigate your new year, and that is healing the inner child. As empaths, many of us were born to families that maybe didn't have a lot of empaths in them. And so often the wounded inner child for the empath is significant because very often as children, we are told not to feel as much or not to validate our truth or not to share our feelings so much. And that can be particularly painful for the empath. So Denise and I wanted to spend this hour with you talking about do you have a wounded inner child um, and what you can do about healing that inner child. And we also wanted to bring some insight and illumination into the thoughts and perceptions about this question. Is your inner child making the decisions in your life or is the adult that you've become making the decisions in your life? And we feel it's really important to think about your life in that term because many people have a wounded inner child that they aren't even aware of. And that inner child, as you know, especially if you're a parent or a teacher, if you ignore a child, they act out. And so if you're ignoring your inner child, that young child inside of you is going to act out in ways that aren't going to be fruitful for your life. So we wanted to talk about what the inner child is. So in my opinion, and Denise, I, you know, please feel free to jump in. Mm-hmm. I feel that the inner child is that little, that little person inside of us that holds our spark of joy, our sense of wonder, and our capacity for magic and believing and hope and wonderful things that can happen for us. But I believe that the inner child also carries our old wounds and those negative tapes. How do, how do you... How do you look at the inner child? I agree. And I also, I, I had an instance a while back and I thought, and I was being really harsh with myself, very negative and, and a lot of negative self-talk. And then all of a sudden it was like this big light bulb went off and I thought, my God, I would never talk to a little child like that. And and it felt very, it was, you know how sometimes something will just click and you'll, you'll, real, you'll find that piece of yourself that, um, and I, I did. I, I had a real, like, strong connection, heart connection with that inner child. With that, because it, honestly, sometimes I think there's so much. Um, it can be a little hokey or a little too. Like people will use that as an excuse rather than dealing with their stuff. Oh, sorry, inner child's wounded. Can't help you. Yes, so I, I think. <laughs> um, and and I think that when I made that connection, it was like, wow, I I need to be as gentle with myself and as nurturing and caring as I would be with a little tiny person. Yes, so. exactly. And I think, and we're going to talk about that as well. We're going to talk about ways that you can start to um, heal your inner child. Uh, most of the research I did for this show comes from um, Thich Nhat Khan's work and Dr. Bradshaw's work, who I feel is like the father of the inner child. And one of the things that he says is that many of us with wounded inner children didn't have a champion in our childhood and that our inner child always needs that champion and that protection. Um, And he also says that the ego will often stand up and say, chill out. It's okay. It wasn't that bad. You had food, clothing, shelter, roof over your head. Quit your whining. 
Mm -hmm. And we tend to minimize and diminish the pain that we suffered as children. And I think it's important to allow that inner child the expression that he or she needs now and to be that champion for that inner child. And, and to think about, you know, where is your biggest wound from your childhood? Um, go ahead. You just made a really good point when you said stop your whining, at, you know, that whole little thing that you just said. And when you reflect that back to being this little you know, a, a small child or a young child or even um, a, a young teenager, you know, any, all those stages of growth, when you're so sensitive and empathic and aware and someone says that, it, it, I personally, from personal experience, I think it bites a lot deeper. I think that it really roots in and, okay, I, I just won't say anything or it, it I, 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 sorry, I'm just yammering there. Um, I'm trying to find the words I want, but I I truly think that that is so, so yes, exactly. It's, it's so intense that it does, um, someone who might have not be quite as empathic as a small child probably could brush it off and laugh it off. And I do know that that's a learned behavior as far as buck up, deal with it. It wasn't that bad. And finding those things, and we do that. We say, oh, I'm so grateful I have a roof over my head or, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't homeless or, or this or that. But it doesn't take away from the intensity of what we felt as small children. Yes, exactly. And I think for empaths in particular, who in my opinion, if you're an empath, you're also highly intuitive. Mm-hmm. When we're told that what we're seeing and feeling isn't true or isn't real, it shuts a part of ourselves down that is yearning to be heard and seen and validated. And, you know, kids, what we do is we idealize our parents and you can't not do that. Like I've read books on it. I've spoken to psychologists about it. You can't not idealize your parents. And so if something is going on with a dysfunction with one of your parents or both of your parents, you're going to blame yourself as a child. It's just, an instinctual thing and nobody can avoid that. So there's no blame there. It's just the way we are programmed. And the one thing I'd like to add that I think is important too is, and this has been coming up a lot in readings with, uh, for parent, for people who are parenting or who have grew up in, in that, in a dysfunctional situation is I truly believe this. We choose the circumstances we come into. So those life lessons are part of, of what we agreed to come and do while we're on the planet. I agree. And I think, and that we need to do a whole separate show on that. Like why, you know, why we made those choices because there's so much we can dive into with that. But I I would invite everyone to think about, um, you know, where in your family were you told that what the truth you were seeing or feeling was wrong and start to think about how that impacted the way you view yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like for me, I, I think that's a perfect point. Yes. I, I worshiped my dad growing up. I really did. He was a great father to me. He was and is just an incredibly kind and gentle man. I worshiped him so much, Denise, that when my, fa- my, my father's father died, you know, we're Catholic. And when you're Catholic, you send, you send everyone mass cards after someone dies. And someone sent us a mass card. Um, with a picture of Jesus on it. Now, keep in mind, this was 1978. Mm-hmm. So my dad had a beard. 
and he was at the, he was in his vegetarian time and he was wearing, we called him his Jesus sandals. (laughs) (laughs) So he would go to work every day in his business suit, but he would come home and change up into his, his Jesus sandals and do yoga and meditate. I thought my dad was Jesus. I literally, like, I, I actually almost convinced one of my sisters. I was like, I think he's Jesus reincarnated. He looks like him. He's got the blue eyes. He wears That's, the shoes. He wears the shoes. And he's so nice. <laughs> but at the same time, my father was a closet alcoholic. And every morning, he was the one that would get us up. My mom was the queen, so she would stay in bed. She never woke up with us for getting ready for school. My dad always did that. So he would wake us up and you know, get us going for school and get breakfast out. And he would always pour his coffee. And then he, I know he would always pour like vodka or whatever, brandy or something into the coffee. But he would say, oh, Samantha, I forgot my eyeglasses in my bedroom. Can you run upstairs and get them? And I would see the eyeglasses around his, like, you know, tucked into his um, suit shirt. Mm-hmm. And I would say, okay, dad. And I'd go out of the room and I would just pause and I'd watch him pour the brandy into the coffee. And then I'd come back in and say, I couldn't find them. And he'd tap his shirt and go, Oh, they're right here. And that was like almost every morning. So when I finally came out to my family and said, "Um, I think dad has a drinking problem. I was the bad person. Right. And everybody was like, no, what are you talking about? He's a wonderful man. Yes, he is. But he also drinks a little too much. So when my dad finally went to um, rehab when I was 14, he totally changed. And I, and I remember he came out and he said, you know, the main thing I learned is you're only as sick as your secrets. Mm-hmm. And he said, I am so proud of what I've done. I'm so proud of how I've healed. And I want you to tell everybody that your father is an alcoholic. Wow. My mom about died. <laughs> And my older two sisters were like, no, daddy, because people associate alcoholics with like mean, angry men and wife beater t-shirts, you know, and you're not. Right. The stereotype. Yes. Yeah. So my sisters still are very reticent to say that, you know, their, their, our dad had an alcohol problem. I'm so proud of him. I mean, I, every, every June, June 26, 1986 is when he entered rehab. And so every June 26th, for every single year since, I get my dad a really special gift and we celebrate it like a birthday. Oh, that is so beautiful. And my other sisters, they don't really do that because I think they still have, I think they were raised so long because by the time he entered rehab, they were 20 and 24 Mm -hmm. and I was only 14. But anyway, my whole point is my whole childhood, I would always say like, dad's been drinking. Or like he'd say to us, you know, let's go get ice cream. And I'd say to mom, I don't want to get in the car. He's been drinking. And she'd yell at me like, he's Mm -hmm. such a great father. He just wants to take you for ice cream. What's wrong with you? So for experiences like that over and over, I just diminished that voice inside of me that said, this is true. And I stopped believing in myself and my instincts and my reactions. And I started giving my power to others. And it took me until my 30s when I awakened my intuition again to start believing in myself and my choices again. And it's my intuition, my empathy that saved me. And that's why I think it's so important to embrace our empathy. 
And, and the healing piece of doing this work now with the inner child stuff allows us to get ready for this next new direction that we're all evolving into. And I know that sounds really a little over the top, but I truly believe that, that we are finishing up and any healing we can do, any release, any forgiveness or forgiveness of ourselves because we did the best we could. And I think that's another piece with this inner child work is sometimes we may look back from an adult perspective rather than the perspective of someone who's three or eight or 14. That's a lot. That's really heavy on the plate. Um, I so. agree. But here's, here's a mistake I made all through my 30s when I was healing my inner child. I started seeing the wounded inner child in my parents. Mm -hmm. and, and that was really helpful and healing. But if one or both of your parents isn't willing to see the wounded child inside of themselves, they are not going to change. And so what I started doing is going back into that fantasy mode. Oh, now that I've healed my inner child, and now that I can see the inner child wounds in my parents, we can now have that relationship I've always craved. Right. And that's not true. So I just want to prepare people because I remember I, I, I read Louise Hay and how she healed her relationship with her mother. And I read Dr. Bradshaw's work and Alice Miller's work, and they all had healed relationships with their parents. And I thought, I can do this. But if your parents aren't willing to change a bit, it's not going to happen. And, and just from, from my mother's past, and we, we had our issues very much so, um, and I have to add on to that is you can continue doing the work when someone is in spirit. And sometimes you still, it still works. You still can make that connection. You can still go through those things and, and it may not be face to face, but you can still do that healing work with, with, with a parent and with their inner child as well. Because it, it's so funny because where I'm sitting right now, I have a picture of my mother as a little girl on the shelf and a lot of times I do, I, I look at that picture and I think she was that little person. And I think back to what her life would have been like at that time. So, so you can keep this ball rolling, even if someone isn't physically carbon based here. Okay. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I think through our experience in our own lives and with our readings, we can prove that. And mm -hmm. I just want to tell a quick little story. My mom's mom makes my mom look like June Cleaver. Mm -hmm. my mom's mom was just a very mean woman and was just angry and bitter her whole life. She passed away when I was 12. I started opening up my intuition, which led to my mediumship waking up in my thirties. I think I'd have to look back at my journals. I think I was around 35, 36. And I had a dream one night where my, um, I woke up in my bedroom and I walked out into my living room and my grandmother was there. And she looked awful. She was dressed not very nicely. And she had like huge heavy bags under her eyes and her hair was really gray, like, like a Brillo pad. Mm -hmm. And she said, Samantha, I, I need help. I need, I need prayers and I need light. Oh. And I know she said more, but that's all I remember. And I just woke up and I was back in my bed and I called my mom and, you know, my mom is incredible incredibly psychic and medium, a medium herself has had amazing experiences and still has trouble accepting it and accepting mm -hmm. me as a, as a medium, but she's had enough experiences herself and with me to know that 
I don't lie. And that this stuff happens to me. So I told her, I said, look, I had this dream about Grammy and this is what she said. I think we all need to pray for her. Can you call your sisters and your cousin? And she did. She called her sisters and she called her cousin who was raised with them pretty much and said, we need, you know, we need to pray for my mom. And so we all just kind of spent the next week or so, just any time saying a prayer. My aunt Claire, who's passed, she went to mass every day and she started lighting candles for her and saying prayers for her. Um, we had masses dedicated to her, all sorts of stuff. About, I don't know, a month or two later, I had another dream. Woke up, go into my living room. My grandmother is sitting there. Now, my grandmother worked in a factory most of her life, never wore makeup, never dressed up. Like, like she was um, five, ten and a half. Can you imagine? Wow, that? that's and very that, tall for that yeah, generation. Very, very tall. So she always felt self-conscious about her dressing and so she would always wear like a like a pantsuit but now she was in a chanel suit wow it was it was in with heels and she had her hair done and her makeup and she looked Aww. so young and so happy and she just held my my grandmother never held me in her life never hugged me never kissed nothing and she held my hands and she said thank you thank you thank you oh and i so i think to me that's proof that when our loved ones pass on, they continue to heal and grow through the light. And that just as you said, we can continue to heal that relationship. I, I can't muster up a feeling of animosity for my grandmother anymore. Right. And, and that's the key. And that's the key to, for not only where our inner child wounding came from, so it's healing it in, you know, by, by projecting that back to, to where it actually originated, but also reflecting it back into ourselves so we can heal. The other piece is when you did that work for your grandmother, from, from what I understand from a more um, shamanic or indigenous practice, you're healing back generations as well as forward. And I truly feel like a big role, like when you were saying that, I saw my sign for big karmic checklist. Doing that work not only healed your mom, her mother, the generations of women back in your family, but it's also sending it forward, healing your girls. And, and it'll, it, and so I love, I love that, that whole visual, but it's also, it's, it um, talks to how this is just energy and frequency. And just because we can't physically see people who have passed, it doesn't mean that their presence, their soul is still not um, vibrating in our frequency levels. Exactly. And they hear us when we pray for them, yes. when we talk about them, when we share with them, when we, they hear us. And it's healthy but, for us. Yes. So I, I just wanted to also say that in, in most dysfunctional families, a master slave system is set up. I know that's a very exaggerated term and I don't mean any disrespect, but just think of it that way. Usually it's in a dysfunctional family with a wounded child or children one person holds all the power mm -hmm. and the others in the family are obedient to this. And usually it's the empath who speaks out about this non-democratic system. And it's the empath who is punished either through overt actions or a system of devaluation and ostracizing. Now I think if the empath is punished through overt ways such as actually hitting them or making them the black sheep of the family i think that can be a little bit easier to heal in retrospect because it's it's so out there 
But I think when the empath is punished through manipulative ways of devaluing them and subtly ostracizing them and favoring one child over the other, for example, I think that can take a lot longer to heal. And so it's important to recognize if that happened to you in your childhood. Yes, I agree. The other thing, Alice Miller has written a lot about healing the inner child. And she says that the truth of our childhood is stored in our body. The conscious mind can forget or be numbed from the truth, but the soul will always remember. And that's really important to keep in mind that usually we will enact not such great behaviors, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, to numb this truth that our soul is holding on to. One thing that Dr. Bradshaw says is that the wounded child always acts out or acts in. Mm -hmm. I found that really profound because I never was, and I still am not, the person to act out. My whole, if I could wear an invisibility cloak all the time, I probably would. <laughs> that would be my favorite superpower to do. <laughs> yeah. Invisibility. Yes. Yeah. Don't, don't look at me. Don't see me. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'll, just, I'll be the quiet, perfect child over here in the corner. But when he said that wounded child will act in, I thought, oh, that's pretty eye-opening. And I, I just, I want to just jump in for a minute. And I think for and I've said this many, many times that the, the generation right now, the, the, the millennials, these younger kids coming in, you know, the babies that are just hitting the planet are coming in with a level of empathy and compassion that is off the charts. But I'm wondering if this epidemic of, um, you know, depression and anxiety in, in children and in young adults is also turning that inward because of the, overwhelming sensitivity mm, well said well said and that's why i think it's more important now than ever to embrace that sensitivity and not see it as a as a crutch as a as a disability but as a as an extra ability and I, it, don't you think that there's a correlation between so many people waking up with this right now as far yes. as we have these kids coming in these babies coming in this new generation that i I, the eternal optimist, I really believe they are here to heal and move us in a new, move us in a more light-filled existence on this planet. But then I'm, I'm thinking that it's also healing us, but where we can help them. We can support this by, by emulating that with ourselves. Definitely. So if you don't mind, Denise, I just want to read a couple of quizzes. They're really quick, so don't... Oh, I'd everyone, love that. Thank everyone you. Everyone listening, don't go, oh my God, she's going to read to us. Um, <laughs> These are from Dr. John Bradshaw, and he created these uh, four question quiz, four or five question quizzes to see where your wounded inner child was born. And he said most of us have a wounded child that was born either in infancy, toddlerhood, preschool age, or elementary school age. So if you have a wounded infant child, you might experience one of one or more of these five uh, issues. Do you have an eating disorder where you are either overeating or undereating? Often that can indicate that you have a wounded infant child because you weren't properly nurtured when you first came to this earth. Do you or someone you partnered with have a drug or alcohol addiction? If that's the case for you, you might have experienced your woundedness as an infant. 
Do you mistrust people or feel a need for control in your life? Do you have fears of abandonment? And he suggests that you think about how do you respond when a relationship ends? Do you have a continual need to be admired? He said a lot of wounded narcissists have um, wounds that began when they were infants. Okay, so if you have a wound that was born when you were a toddler, you might have trouble knowing what you want. And this is something I've talked about before. You know, like when you're having lunch with a friend, where do you want to go eat? I don't know, where do you want to go eat? Well, wherever you want to go eat. <laughs> Just <laughs> the, the simple knowing what you want and being able to express it. Do you have a fear of trying new experiences? Do you have a fear of anger, your own or others? Do you avoid saying no directly? Oh my gosh, I do that all the time. And that's something I think you and I both are working on, right? Saying no we and are. setting those nice boundaries. Okay, We're now. a step away from a kitchen magnet with that one. Yeah. <laughs> now you might have a wounded preschool inner child if you feel responsible for your parents' happiness. Do you have trouble identifying what you're feeling? Do you have difficulty expressing your feelings? And then here's a big one I think a lot of us do. Do you act or make guesses based on assumptions? Ooh. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, you might have a wounded school-age child if you feel uncomfortable in social situations or if you are excessively competitive if you either give in too easily or have to have your way. And then the last one is, do you have an intense fear of making a mistake? And you, you know, when you read through these and, and listen, it, it, a lot of, there's, there's bits and pieces from all of those areas, I think, for many of us. Yes. That one may really jump out at you and be like, oh my gosh, I never identified, but I hit, four out of five on that and but then you can as you listen through there's little bits and pieces that i think as empaths most most of us have experienced something throughout all of those stages i agree i agree you might um like for example i'm not competitive at all i don't have a competitive bone in my body i can't even watch election returns because i hate the thought of someone <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big competitive person either. But I do have a fear of making a mistake. I do. And if I make a mistake, I will beat myself up 10 ways to Sunday. And, and also try to make it better or apologize or I'll do it. Yes. And, and I wonder if the perfectionism thing comes in there. I'm sure. Oh, you, you guys should see Denise and I when we're like doing this show. It's ridiculous. Like if I'm late calling in to record. I'm so sorry, Denise. I'm really sorry. That's okay. Don't worry. I'm sorry. I sent the link too late. It's, it's hilarious. It is. So it, it always, works. So it works. It works beautifully. But I just, I always want to remind everyone that we are not doing this show from a point of look at what we've accomplished. Oh um, no. You know, this is, we're all in this together. Yes. A hundred percent. So, um, 
He, Dr. Bradshaw also says that wounded children as adults often experience trust, trust issues. Um, and he also says they, they experience magical beliefs. And I, I was like, wait, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that my, my love of Harry Potter means I have a wounded inner child? <laughs> so I researched that and he said what he meant by magical beliefs is that um, you believe that your sadness or your anger can magically go away if you eat this food or drink this drink or take this drug or mm -hmm. shop for this amazing outfit or get this beautiful home or have this perfect relationship. It's this magical belief that something else is going to heal this inner child. So, so trying to fill the hole. Right, exactly. Um, he also said that um, wounded children as adults may have intimacy dysfunctions or they might have non-disciplined behavior. So, for example, they might be OCD or impulsive or a procrastinator. So interesting to think about how it affects us as adults. Yes. And also, you know, in this time of, of manifesting and co-creating, how important it is to, to heal this within ourselves so that we can, you know, it, um, I don't want to say put it to rest because I think that it stays with us as, as a marker. I don't think that we ever fully release that, but we can come to terms with it and we can accept it within ourselves and do that healing work. But to co-create or to manifest what we want to bring into our lives and you know, we're at the beginning of this new year, basically, by dragging that same stuff along, we're going to drag along those same patterns and behaviors. Yes. Now, Denise and I are teaching a webinar um, on February, Wednesday, February 7th, on manifesting love in the new year. And we're really excited to do that. And I wanted to talk about um, how the wounded child chooses love partners. And we're going to talk about that more in our, in our webinar on the 7th. But I wanted to touch upon it now. In the research that I've done, you will subconsciously, if you haven't healed this inner child, you will choose a partner that represents the parent you have the most issues with. Because you're still trying to heal that dysfunctional relationship. And so if you can't do it with the parent, because either you haven't recognized it or the parent is unwilling, often you will subconsciously choose a partner that represents the parent, male or female, we're not talking gender here, who represents the issues you most need to work out. And I remember when I read that the first time, I was in my 20s, and I was like, that is BS, because my partner couldn't be more different from my mom if you know I mm -hmm. tried to pick someone different. But now I can see it. You know, I had a boyfriend uh, for five years. One of the reasons why I broke up with him, Denise, we didn't mm -hmm. fight. I, I literally told him that, and one of the reasons why I broke up with him, I said, "We don't fight. Like, there's not enough passion there. Like, I, I don't, I, I never knew a couple that didn't fight. What he was so easygoing. Like, nothing bothered him. He was always happy, and it just felt so foreign to me. Yeah, like and something I, was wrong. Like something was wrong, and I thought he was healthy. He was. Imagine <laughs> that." <laughs> And what's interesting is I picked him when I was living away from home. Mm -hmm. 
And then I moved back to, to my family and I picked my former husband and we fought all the time and I loved it. It was, we had great chemistry. We had lots of passion. And I thought that that fighting meant we were communicating. Like it was normal to me. That's what mm -hmm. I knew. And right. so I think it's important in hindsight to look back at your relationships and think, where was I in my life when I chose this person? Who, which aspects of my, of my parent that I have the most issues with does this person represent? And how have I healed that in myself and in this relationship? And you made a really good point that it might not, that the, the circumstances might not mimic. Like you may have had a very loud, abrasive, controlling parent and you bring in a partner who may not have those, those tendencies, but the impact on you emotionally will be the same. So you, you, you might think you haven't brought in the same person because, oh, no, no, he doesn't do this or she doesn't do that like my parent did. But the behaviors are, when you get on the other side of it, and, and you made an excellent point with that, when you look back at the circumstances, it's like, oh, my goodness, they could be a rubber stamp family. They're all the same person. Exactly, exactly. And when you're still in it, and you're not aware of yourself and your inner child, it's really hard to see it. Yes. So I think it's important not to blame yourself for any choices that you made, just simply to recognize them. But don't and you think that's almost protecting that inner child when you don't recognize it? I think it's protecting it in the moment, but I, I don't think it's um, helpful. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's just prolonging the agony pretty right. much. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but I think for me anyway, whenever I have those aha moments, that's really all I need to do, <clears throat> excuse me, to heal that is have that, that awareness. Yes. So a lot of people will, you know, email us um, and say, well, okay, what do I do? Like now that I see that pattern, what do I do? And I often feel that people are disappointed by my response, but my response is usually just seeing it is healing it. it. It's like it's like looking at all these different puzzle pieces and you finally see how they all go together. That's all you need to put that whole puzzle together and make it whole again. There's no magical amulet or spell or words you have to say. It's just seeing it that helps to heal it. Right. And, and you can also, um, you know, talk to your inner child like you would a small person, like I said earlier, also, if you look at pictures of yourself when you were a little, when you were a child or when, so say you identify, oh my goodness, you know, you read the list and you, someone listening to this is saying, I hit every single one of the infancy things. If you have a picture of yourself as an infant, look at that picture and see, like, send that baby love. <laughs> Um, the other piece might be if you're a little bit older child when you had this in is recreate some of the things you love to do. Like I'm a very avid reader. I love to read. I love words. But when I was little, um, from when I was a little tiny person, because I started to read really young, that was always my default position. I would go hide places and I would read for hours and hours and hours. And I would, you know, when I got old enough to be independent, I would take my bike to the local library and I would spend hours in there and I would get books and books and books because it was an escape for me. 
and it was quiet and I could just fall into that world. Um, so I think, and, and the other piece is don't discount doing meditation or vis visualization work for that healing piece. I think that's really important as well. Yes, and you can, you can just YouTube that. You can YouTube meditation to, to heal your inner child. Um, Dr. Bradshaw has some good ones. Shirley MacLaine has a really good one that I still have on a cassette tape. Can you imagine that? <laughs> but do you have a cassette player? I do not. <laughs> See, I do. No, I'll have to give it to you. Um, one of the things that I did when I was actively working to heal my inner child, I took a picture of myself. Um, it was like a school photo from, I don't know, like the second grade. And I put it in the middle of a piece of foam board. And I just put words and phrases around that picture of me as a child that I wished someone had said to me. Oh, that's lovely. And I hung it up um, right on my headboard. And so every night I would touch that photo and I would talk to her and, and pray to her. And I would read those words to her. Um, I also, if any of you are attuned to Reiki 2, you will know the distant healing symbol. You can use that um, symbol to send healing to your inner child. So I would draw that symbol over that collage I had done every day and send healing to her. And the, the other piece to that, you used all the different modalities to make that connection. The, the physical, the spiritual, the mental, the visual, all of those things. And I think that that's another piece. It, it, it might take, this isn't easy stuff. No. This, is a, this is a long process to, to make this commitment. And you're, you're committing to yourself as I want to feel better. Correct. Correct. Um, you can also write a letter to your inner child and tell her everything or him everything that you need to say and finally acknowledge the pain that you may have experienced as a child. Another thing you can do is do things that you couldn't do as a kid. Like I, I had a friend once we were in a, like a craft store and he saw this huge airplane modeling kit and he said, gosh, I always wanted that as a kid and I never got it. And I grabbed that thing off the shelf and I said, buy it now. And he was oh. like, I don't want to put an airplane together now. We were like in our twenties. We didn't have kids. It wasn't like that. And I said, I don't care. I, you have to take this off the shelf, buy it, and put this airplane together. And he did. And it started like a little hobby for him. And he does recreations on that all the time now. Um, I had another girlfriend and she was like, you know, I never got a spirograph as a kid. And I, it's the silliest thing, but I always wanted one. So I said, you've got to go get one. And she did. She called me and she was like, you know, after 30 minutes, it's not so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but she was really glad she did it. I always wanted a telescope mm -hmm. and my parents were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So I finally got myself a telescope. Um, so just little things like that where you're honoring and nurturing the child within you. I, I was like you too, Denise, where reading was my escape and my pleasure. And every time I make time to read, I feel and, that pleasure. And this ties in beautifully, beautifully. If you have a very empathic child, and they have something that they really, and not over the top, and this isn't about spoiling or entire, it's not about that. If they have an interest or they have a desire, honor that or do whatever you can to honor that. Don't discount it. Don't, I think that that's so, so important a piece as well, that even while we're doing our own work, we can also 
you know, play it, pay it forward for, for the kids that are either in our care or that we know, or even people. Um, and, and I think as we all become more sensitive, even when the, you know, the young girl in high school that's checking you out at the grocery store and you know, she's an empath and she, you know, she's a sensitive engage with that. Encourage, yes. um, let them know they're not alone on the planet. Yes. You know, as, as a little, I was raised in a conservative family. So one of my heroes growing up was Ronald Reagan. What a surprise. And <laughs> when he was elected in 1980, I wrote like a congratulatory letter to him. And, you know, this is 1980. So there was no internet, obviously. And I, I couldn't find an address to send it to him. I didn't know how to look it up. And my parents just never bothered to. And so I never sent that letter. So flat, which is silly, because now it's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't know how I didn't know that, but I, I didn't. I was eight. Mm-hmm. But so now my kids um, hero worship J.K. Rowling. So my youngest daughter and her friend wrote, I think it's called like fan fiction, you know, like like a piece about um, the three of three of them, Hermione, Ron, and Harry grown up. And it was beautiful. It's like 15 pages, it's a great short story. And I said, you've got to send this to her. And they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, no, no, you have to. And so we, we put it all together. I found an address where you can send JK Rowling stuff. And it took about six months, but we got a letter back from her agent. And oh. just to see the stamp from England made them so excited. And my little Chloe, she wouldn't even open it until her friend was with her. So she couldn't come over that day. So we just did FaceTime and we videoed it. It was so exciting. Um, I think it's important to honor whatever their passions are. You know, my, my middle daughter is an artist. If you'd like to join her public Instagram page where she shares her art, it's T-Star Art. And I'm always trying to, you know, I created a whole little art desk for her and I try to encourage, we do art classes and I try to encourage that all the time. Um, I am by no means a perfect parent. I constantly tell my kids, I have a college fund for you. Um, I'm hoping you'll get some scholarships so you can use the other half of that for the therapy you'll need. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I am proud of as a mom is that I'm really honest with my kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and if they say to me, because my kids are really empathic, especially my youngest. And if they say to me, like, mom, you doing okay? You having a bad day? I don't go, no, I'm fine. I'll say to them, I'm feeling a little sad today and I'm not really sure why. I'm fine, but you're right. I'm feeling a little off today. I think that's really important to help raise empathic, intuitive children and teach them how to honor the truth that they're feeling inside. And that's a really good point because when my sons were younger and we were I was a single parent I I did do the I'm fine because I didn't want them to feel like they weren't safe I didn't want them to think "Uh uh-oh what's going to happen to us if if she's not okay because they had been through a lot of turmoil and a lot of things that you know I'm sure that they could listen to what we talked about earlier and, and have some of those things in their lives um, so I, I think that I, that's, I respect you a lot for being that honest with your girls about it. I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't being honest. It was more, I that think protection. there's that fun. Yeah, exactly. It's that yeah. protection piece that 
and especially for anyone that's listening that may be in a circumstance or have been in a circumstance where they've had to be um, emotionally, physically, or whatever, protective of their children, or they've become the primary person who's responsible for everything in their children's lives. Yes. That's a really, really incredibly hard role, especially if you're trying to break the cycle of, of maybe choosing to parent differently than the way you were parented. Yes, I agree. And you know, when I'm emotionally ready, we can do a show on divorce and the empath, but I'm still going through it. So I'm not ready to talk about it. But I will say that, you know, I think it's so important to honor your children in every dysfunctional situation you're going through without dishonoring their, their other parent, you know, like the other day, my daughter was saying she was reading this article we were driving to the movies, oh, the greatest showman on earth, please go see it. It's so good. Anyway, driving to the movies and she's reading this article on how um, more people believe in love at first sight. And she was like, mom, that's a load of crock, isn't it? I mean, there's no such thing as love at first sight. <laughs> and I said, I, I disagree. I said, I, I said, I really believe your dad and I fell in love at first sight. I mean, we both, we both said to our friends at the time, I'm going to marry that person. And I said, and when I saw him, I knew that was the one for me. And she said, well, we know how that turned out. And I said, and I said, honey, I said, we had a great run. I wouldn't change it for a second. And mm-hmm. I love that man. And that man loves you. And I yeah. think it's really important, no matter what you're going through personally with your partner, to always mirror that, model that for your kids, you know, that to have that positivity and that honesty, you know, like, I'm really sad about this. It's not what I would have chosen, but you were born in love. I think kids need to hear that. And developmentally, and even as adults, we identify as being part of both parents, whether they're present in our lives or not. So if you're bad-mouthing another parent, a lot of empathic children are going to take that personally, like there's something wrong with me, because that's half of who I am. Exactly, exactly. Um, there's a really good book by Thich Nhat Hanh, um that's called Healing the Inner Child. I love his work. If there's, he has another really good book called How to Love. And it's like 25 pages and there's like two sentences on each page. It's a really quick book, but it has, he just has a way of putting things so succinctly. Um, and one of the things that he always talks about is the importance of speaking your truth. And I don't know if you dealt with this with your siblings, Denise, but my sisters and I, we would go one of two ways when we're talking about our wounded inner child. We would either try to convince each other and ourselves that it wasn't that bad, or we would have a competition for who had it worst. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do that? Um, (laughs) I don't have that relationship with, with my sister and anyone who knows me personally is probably laughing pretty hard right now because I know the dynamics, (laughs) right? Um, no, that she, she's more of the mindset of, I'm going to be very blunt here. Shit happens. Get over it. Um, so, but my brother and I have talked about it a little bit and I'm, I'm right in the middle. So I, I, you know, kind of have that. That's one of the reasons that I have two children. I didn't want to subject someone to be in the middle child. No offense to anyone who is a middle child. Um, so I, I think that um, that's wonderful. You can have that conversations with your sisters, but you're right. It can become competitive or 
one thing that later in life, you know, and especially when my mother was passing, my sister was quite verbal about, you know, you wouldn't know because you left or you were this or you were that. And it was very accusatory. And I think that that's that fine line when you're trying to do your own inner work is as an empath, don't suck up somebody else's stuff and make that yours too. Mm. It's not your fault if your sibling went through something or you're, you know, it, it, you have to own your stuff and deal with it first. And and for many of us trying to even put that much attention on ourselves without it feeling selfish or ego-based is a really, really, really big step. I agree. Well, you know, I remember when, um, when my dad was in rehab, we had to go to family therapy and my sisters were out of the house. So it was just my mom and me and my dad. And what they, what the therapist taught is that children of alcoholics usually follow very regimented roles in their adulthood. And she said the oldest tends to, is your sister the oldest? Yes. Yep. Okay. See, because the oldest tends to have that motto through life. Shit happens, get over it. They also tend to fly the coop first. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, because they're the oldest, but I mean, like uh, emotionally leave the family. And the middle child tends to be the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Or they'll be the, um, the entertainer. They'll make yeah. everyone happy. And then the youngest tends to be the artistic introvert. And when she was putting that up there, I was like, oh my God, is she like working for the CIA? And are they spying on my family? Because it was <laughs> so spot on. And so it sent me down this rabbit hole through my high school and college years. Whenever I had free time, I would read about... Um, birth roles and so whenever my sisters and i did get together the three of us only get together at most once a year but i would always um i'd wait till they had like a glass or two of wine in them and i would say like let's talk about you know what what happened and what we dealt with growing up with mom's angry outburst and my older sister didn't want to talk about it and my middle one wanted the middle sister wanted to make jokes about it Mm -hmm you know, and she'd say, it's like a sitcom, you know, if this were a sitcom, we'd be the funniest family. But I was always the one to say, you know, let's talk about this. And if you have an opportunity to talk to your siblings about this, I think it can be so healing to see their childhood from their point of view in alignment with yours. And, and I, I want to add one more piece to that is um, generational dysfunction that my father didn't drink because his father was an alcoholic. So he made, he said, I don't, but he never, God love him. And, you know, I adore my father that he never did the work as an adult child of an alcoholic. So he still held on to those behaviors and tendencies of being in that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Do you know what? There's a, there's a phrase for that. It's called a dry drunk. Right. Yeah. But you still, I think as children of that, of an adult child who may not have had the physical, you know, attributes or manifestations of that, you're still getting that same emotion and and behavioral impact. Yes, exactly. And again, there's no judgment there. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Such a wonderful man. And, you know, doing the best they can. Right. And on my mother's side, I mean, she was... Um, born, you know, three months premature. They didn't think she'd live. And this is back in the 30s. So when you think about a premature baby born that early and, and making it, but her brothers were significantly older. 
So when she was a little girl, she was growing up and three of her brothers were in World War II at once. And she said, she said to me once, she says, I remember my mother crying every day when the mail would come because she'd be so afraid that something had happened to one of the boys. And she said, so there was a big chunk of time in her life growing up where it was such turmoil from my grandma because she was so distraught about her sons being in the war and so far away. So my mother would have carried that and and brought it down to us, not intentionally, but that's going to be a big, you know, a huge traumatic effect in in someone's childhood. Um, There's another thing I'd like to add real quick is there's a, which it goes along with if you have children now, or if you work in children's services or education or, or medic, whatever it is, but I think just in general, there's a new checklist that they're doing now for um, to measure dysfunction. There's an online quiz you can do. It's ACES, A-C-E-S, like the, like the card in ACE with an S on the end. And it's about adverse child experiences and how they impact us. And this ties in beautifully with this inner child work. So you can do an online quiz and it will say, oh, okay, I had this, I had this, I had this. So you might see that there's even more than, than you um, – then you realize that happened, or you might be able to look at what's happening for your own children or, or people that you know, but you can also say, oh, okay, I have these items, but look at all the positive things that I didn't have to deal with. Really good point. Yeah, really, really good point. You know, also as, as a wounded child who's hit adulthood, and then we create our own family and we have our own kids, I think recognizing that your children are going to have wounds that they carry into adulthood can be difficult to embrace and understand. I have a client that I've been working with who lost a child through a tragic uh, way. And she said to me a couple of months ago, she said the hardest thing for me to live with besides having to live without my child here is what this has done to my son. Mm Mm-hmm. And she said, because we were the perfect family, and they really were. They were just a great, amazing family, and still are. But she said, now he comes home from school every day, and I'm crying. And so not only does she have the sadness of losing a child, but she has the anger of what is this doing to her child that's that's still here. And, you know, I remember when I was, uh, when my former husband was shot in the line of duty, and I was sitting in the hospital, my sister said to me, this is your before and after moment. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, your life will never be the same. And I kind of wanted to slap her for that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but she's a hundred percent right. And I was so pissed off because I had done everything to create this perfect family. And mm-hmm. I had that. And I was so flipping proud of myself. And I had so much anger going shit. Like my kids are going to have to deal with the fact at such an early age that evil exists in this world. Right. You know, that someone could try so hard to kill another human being. And then they're going to have to deal with the fact that this has changed their father irrevocably. He will never be the same. And that was all out of my control. Right. And I think as wounded inner children, that control piece is so important to us. I know for me it is. I'm very comfortable when I'm in control. And, and I, as empaths and being so, so sensitive, I would always worry that my boys were feeling that same level of sensitivity that I felt and how it devastating circumstances would have been for me. And I, 
and one of my sons is, they're both very, very uh, intuitive in their own rights, but one is more empathic than the other. And I think that I always worried that, I, I was afraid, is he feeling this at the depth that I would have felt it? Right. So right. again, anything you can do to, um, to validate for your children and for yourself and for that inner child that you did the best you could. That's right. And that you're always honest with your kids about the fact that, yeah, this does suck. I think it's right. really important to not gloss over things. And I look at my friends. I have a lot of friends who come from really great, healthy childhoods. And sometimes it's hard for me because I'll listen to their stories or, you know, like I went to dinner with some girlfriends the other night and they were sharing stories of like their favorite Christmases as kids. <laughs> and I was sitting there going, man, maybe I'm like a really dark person because <laughs> all my stories are kind of sad. And so I was just thinking like, I'm so much more comfortable with people who have like similarly dysfunctional childhoods. Yes. But anyway, there are a lot of people who have wonderful childhoods and I'm sure they're listening. If you are one of those people, that's great. However, I don't think that I would trade my childhood for a functioning, healthy, happy childhood. Because if I had a healthy, happy childhood, I wouldn't be doing this work. Good point. You know, I wouldn't have needed, felt the need to swim out to that deep end of the ocean where all the richness of emotions live. I would be so content just to stay at that shallow end and just be happy. Mm -hmm. And while that's nice in the moment, I'm grateful for the depths of emotions I've had to learn how to experience and carry into my soul experience and i i don't think i would change that for anything and i think looking at your childhood in that light can be very healing yes and i think you should just write down what you just said because that was so so beautifully put beautiful okay. well, well you're welcome you you know the expression of foo fighter mm-hmm I call myself a Foo Fighter, but it doesn't mean what it meant in World War II. I, I mean, a family of origin. Oh, that's, that's a, and I love those little acronyms. So you can just give yourself those little reminders. Or Now, I did this thing, I think I wrote a blog post about it a long time ago, on one thing to consider about trying to heal inner child work, and this is really bizarre, is you write down something that, you know, a negative self-talk that you might have, or, you know, if you, if you're, if it's body image or I'm not smart enough or, or whatever, and you, you write that out and you sit, you write all, you know, I feel this way about myself. I'm not this, I'm not that. And then take the pencil, pen, crayon, whatever you're writing with and put it in your, your non-dominant hand and then write from that perspective. And it automatically, it blew me away because it linked me to that little girl and I struggled to form the letters. And it was just, that was one of those pivotal moments of, of what I mentioned earlier, when you, you reconnect with that inner child and you would never ever say those harsh, hard words to someone that was that fragile and little and gentle. So it's a word, it's kind of a fun thing to try because it does, right, yeah. it, it pulls you right in there. That's right. Well, if you want to become a Foo Fighter too, um, <laughs> I think that you should try a lot of these techniques. One of the ones to start with is identify the unspoken rules of your family of origin. Writing those down. You know, yes. what were the unspoken rules? 
was it that your family is perfect? Was it that we don't talk about things? Was it that we don't speak about difficult things? And start to identify what are the unconscious rules you were raised with. Because what happens is families who are raised in a little bit of dysfunction or a lot of dysfunction tend to rely on instinctual reactions rather than their own emotional feelings. And as empaths, we must always honor our emotional feelings. And so bringing truth and light to the pain and the joy you were raised with can help you make positive decisions in your life now, whether it's in terms of your career, like we've spoke about on the show already, or if it's in terms of choosing a partner or just your friends or creating your own new family of yes. champions and protectors for you. So we're almost out of time today. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that, that we haven't touched upon? No, I think we covered a lot. Okay, good. The, um, the Dr. John Bradshaw book I, I looked at for this show is called Homecoming, Reclaiming and Championing Your Inner Child. Um, and that's a good book to look to as well. So we hope that we've given you some things, some food for thought, some things to think about and some activities and actions that you can take now to start to heal your inner child. Um, if you are interested in manifesting more love for yourself and um, for your relationships, don't forget to check out our webinar on February 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Denise and I are also putting together a several week webinar on basic mediumship, uh, where we're going to guide you into how to awaken and embrace the medium within you. So we'll be coming to you with more information on that soon. Uh, as you all probably know, I'm the handout queen, so I've got to get all my handouts ready, and Denise does too. And once we have that done, we will um, get more specific information for you. Please join us on our Facebook page, Enlightened Empaths, and send us any questions or comments there uh, because we're going to try to answer questions and comments and stories that we feel the general audience will enjoy for a monthly Q&A. Um, in the meantime, we hope that you've enjoyed this show. We thank you for subscribing to us on iTunes and helping us build this community of enlightened empaths. Don't forget to show up, do great work, and share your light. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.